Well, good morning, church family. You know, this weekend, there's been a lot that's going on around here. I want to recognize a few people. Um, first, Elka had a production here on Friday night, and it was a phenomenal production. It was a theatrical thing, plus um, some uh, music and, and worship and things of that nature. It was really, really good. We got to see uh, many people at least hear the gospel, some of them for the very first time. And uh, if you didn't get to be a part of that, uh, you miss a tremendous treat. Uh, Tracy Fuller and all the team at Elka did such a phenomenal job uh, putting that on. Uh, but then last night, our students had a firework extravaganza um, out at the Pex uh, farmland, and it was a phenomenal night as well. Um, it feels like during this time of the year uh, that there's something that goes on every single night. Uh, so if you blink, you'll miss it, all right? Um, so we do want to make sure that you're keeping up with what's going on. Um, but what I wanted to do today is I wanted to start a little heavy, and then we're going to get into the life of the sermon. Um, today, I wanted to share with you that uh, one of our uh, partnering churches, sister churches, however you want to look at it, um, Community Bible, uh, lost a staff member last night, and we want to be praying for them. Um, they've had to cancel services today, uh, but we certainly want uh, to pray for them. We are in this together um, in the mission that God has called us to, uh, so we want to be praying over them. So let's go and pray right now for them, for the Lord to be near to their hearts and their lives. Some of you know a little bit more about that uh, situation than uh, we're able to say today, but we certainly want to let them know that we love them. They're our brothers and sisters in Christ and pray for them. So let's do that today. God, thank you so much for how good and gracious you are to us. Thank you for being a king that reigns, that nothing that happens on this earth happens without you knowing it's going to happen. And Lord, we know that uh, a sister church uh, partners in the gospel of Jesus down the road from us. Um, they're suffering today, uh, the loss of someone that they love. And we pray that this morning you would be so, so near to them. Um, you tell us that you are near to the brokenhearted, and we pray that, that they today would experience you and feel you um, in a very intimate and real way. We ask you, Lord, to bring healing to all of those who are affected by this uh, situation. We pray that this will just propel uh, the gospel to go forward even further uh, for, for your sake. Lord, we don't always understand how you get glory from situations like this, uh, but what we do know is that you will. And uh, we do know that you're working all details out for your good and your glory. So we pray uh, that that's exactly what will come from this situation. From all of those involved in the situation, we ask you uh, to be near to them, comfort them, uh, just, just draw them close to your heart today, allow them to experience you in a, in a new and a refreshing way. God, we'll give you all the praise and honor and glory for what you're going to do. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, well, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew, that's the first Gospel of the New Testament. The book of Matthew shouldn't be too hard to find. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 1 this morning. What I want to do today is I want to link where we were with where we're going, okay? So in the past few months, we've been exploring the life of David. If you have not been here with us, it has been a phenomenal series through David's life. We didn't cover everything in detail, um, but we did try to you know, brush over majority of it, and we, tr we covered most of his life in the span of 12 weeks. We could have done that in much longer and covered stories that maybe you uh, wanted to hear. Um, but we did cover majority of his life. We did that over the span, like I said, of 12 to 13 weeks. And really, what the story of David does is what really every story in the Bible does. It points you to three things. It points you uh, first to the brokenness of the world, the brokenness of self, and then also it points you to Christ. Uh, so I want to walk through that within the life of David so that I can set the text up for where we're going today. 
Um, but there are three things that the life of David did, and I want you to see those very, very clearly. First, we see the brokenness of the world. When we look at David's life, uh, there is no mistake about it that you see that the world in which David lived was marred with brokenness. Literally every single page of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, um, even Chronicles, um, every single page of, of these uh, infamous stories in the Bible are filled with the sin, the brokenness of the world. I don't have to spend a whole lot of time today convincing you that the world that you and I live in is absolutely broken. But listen to the account that you and I read through the book of 1 and 2 Samuel and just consider, if you will, for a moment, the cruel and broken world that David lived in. The first person that you were introduced to was the first king of Israel. The first king of Israel was a guy by the name of King Saul. King Saul struggled with bitterness, you see, throughout the book. He struggled with jealousy throughout the book. Several times, over and over and over again, King Saul attempted homicide throughout the book by trying to kill David himself. So King Saul is a picture for us of the brokenness of the sin of the world. Well, what about, what about the, a guy by the name of Amnon? You remember the story of Amnon? Amnon, what he do? He raped his half-sister Tamar. Again, you see the brokenness of the world even in the book of First and Second Samuel. David's sons, Absalom and Adonijah, what about them? Both of them, what did they do? They tried to rebel against their father and they tried to take over their father's throne. Again, you're introduced to the brokenness of this world through David's two sons, or two of David's sons. What about Joab? Joab was David's right-hand man. Joab was with David throughout majority of his life. When David was fleeing for his life from King Saul, when King Saul was trying to kill him, Joab was right there with King David. When David would occupy the throne, Joab became the leader of David's army. And what did Joab do when he found one of David's sons hanging in the forest? Well, he killed him. He stuck three javelins or three spears through Absalom's heart. So you see, literally, the brokenness of the world all throughout the book of 1st and 2nd Samuel, all throughout David's life. But then, everything turned for the worse when we saw David, who was really the hero of the entire book for majority of it, when he committed egregious acts of sin of his own. You remember the story? The, the Israel was at war, and the rain season came, so Israel paused from war like they typically would, and then when the rain season was over and war would resume, David decided instead of going into battle like he was supposed to as a king, he would stay home. And when he stayed home, he got bored. And as a bored man, he went and walked out on his balcony. And when he was out on his balcony, he looked and he saw a woman who was bathing by the name of Bathsheba. He sent his men to go get Bathsheba to bring her back to him. He ends up sleeping with her, impregnating her, and then trying to cover up his sin, he had her, her husband murdered in battle. And then he made every attempt that he could afterwards to make sure that no one knew about it and that it would never be known. David's life, David's family, was a mess. When you walk through this book, First and Second Samuel, you see war, you see deceit, you see betrayal, you see sexual infidelity, you see greed, you see wrath, you see malice, you see anger, you see unforgiveness, you see bitterness, and the list goes on and on and on. This was the world 
that David lived in. David's world was completely broken. As you consider what David's world looked like, it's hard not to think, man, that sounds a lot like the world that I live in. Things haven't changed too much since the life of David and the life of me. Today, mental health is on a rise. Suicide happens every single day. Morality is probably the only thing in our society that is on a decline. Broken marriages everywhere you look. Health issues are, are, are all over, just to name some. It doesn't take long for us to see that the world that David lived in and the world that we live in have a lot of similarities. There's brokenness all around you and I. This story, David's story, our lives, the life that you and I live, should remind us of what John said in Revelation chapter 20, where he said, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And he says that because Jesus is our only hope in the midst of a broken world. But the truth of the matter is, is David's life and the book of David, or not the book of David, but the book of First and Second Samuel, they point us to the reality that we do indeed live in a broken world. But that's not the only thing that the story of David did. Not only did we see the brokenness of the world, but secondly, we also see the brokenness that's in us. We see the brokenness that's in us. See, we can sit here this morning and talk in broad generalities about the brokenness that's outside of us, but if we never face the, come face to face with the brokenness that's inside of us, we can't make the world a better place. And as we walk through this book, we're confronted with the reality that not only is the world around us broken, but also we are broken as well. In many ways, when you read First uh, and Second Samuel, we read First Kings chapters one and two yesterday. When you read these uh, several different passages, one of the things that 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 you will feel like you're doing is like you're looking at yourself in the mirror, which is exactly what the Word of God often does. So some of the same struggles that they had in their lives are struggles that me and you we have in our lives. King Saul's jealousy and vengeance should remind us of our own jealousy and our own vengeance. When someone harms us or hurts us or commits evil acts against us, what do we want to do? We want to do exactly what King Saul did. We want to take vengeance in our own hands. We want to seek wrath on our, of our own. What about Abner's selfishness? It should remind us, too, of our own selfishness, that you and I oftentimes try to become the center of our own universe that you and I fight to be the nucleus, the core of the lives in which we live. When we know that our lives are supposed to be centered around the word of God, instead, they're really centered around us. What about Joab's bitterness? It should remind us of our own bitterness, our own unwillingness to forgive and let go and just do things the way that God intends them to be done. What about David's lust? David's lust should remind us of our own lust. And we come to David's life when he commits these gross infractions of the law, and we have a front row seat not only to what he does, but also to the consequences of what he does, and yet still we choose to lust and ignore the consequences of his life. But like these men, one day we are, we are chasing hard after God. The next day we're sinking deep and sinking low into the depravity of our own souls. One day we are hard chasing after God, and the next day we're chasing hard after the fleeting pleasures of this world. 
The question on the table this morning should be, what do we do with our sin? When we commit gross infractions of the law against the heart of God, what do we do with that? Do we act like David and try to cover it up? Do we act like David and try to just destroy the evidence? Do we act like David and try to sweep everything under the rug? Do we act like David and ignore the issue that plagues our heart? Many of you in this room know that you have some of the same struggles that we saw in First and Second Samuel. Maybe unforgiveness is something that you continue to wrestle with to this day. Somebody somewhere hurts you, and because of that hurt, and because of that pain, and because of that temporary suffering that you experience, you, you find it very difficult to forgive that somebody. Well, Trey, you don't know the extent by which they went. When we look at this story, the extent doesn't really matter. The inevitable consequence of unforgiveness, we see the results. It's not worth holding on to. That's not what Jesus would encourage us to do. Maybe you're here and you're wrestling with anger. Someone says something about you or somebody committed a gross infraction of the law against you and you are angry and you're holding on to that instead of dealing with it and getting it right and being unified for the sake of Christ and his church and for his glory, you continue to wrestle with that anger and that bitterness and it continues to fester up emotions that aren't elicited by God. Maybe you're here today and you, of all people, you have disguised an adulterous affair. And you're doing everything you can to make sure that the evidence doesn't come to the surface. You're hiding it. You're keeping it back. And you keep telling yourself, I won't do it again. No one will know. I'll deal with it. I'll bury it. And I won't do it again, so it'll be history. David's life should be a great indicator to you that that is not the way that you handle it. When Nathan came and confronted David, David had no choice but admit it. But also, Psalm 51 is a beautiful picture of what repentance, true repentance, genuine repentance looks like. And it wasn't like David was able to walk through this on his own. He had a community of faith, a pastor, and others in his life to help him through it. Maybe you're here today and you're just a compulsive liar. You're full of deceit. And every lie you tell, you have to tell another lie to make up for the lie that you told that somebody's starting to catch on to. And maybe for you, you learn through this story, you know what, the sin and the problem's not really outside of me. The sin and the problem is inside of me. And I can keep pointing my fingers, my many fingers, at the problems of the world, but they do nothing for me. But until I turn those fingers on myself, that's when I'll start seeing true transformation take place. So this story, the life of David, exposes us and allows us to see the brokenness of the world. It allows us to see the brokenness. That's in us. But third and finally, it allows us to see Jesus. It allows us to see Jesus. See, the life of King David really points us to the life of a greater king, a perfect king. And his name is Jesus. Like us, David's greatest need wasn't a better life or a new start or a fresh set of downs. Greatest, or David's greatest need was Christ himself. David wasn't looking for a better job or another way out. David's only hope was in Jesus himself. So ma'am, sir, as I went through the litany of 
of, of things that I went through just a moment ago, exposing some of the realities of our world, sins that we struggle with, things that plague us, things that we don't shake or let go of. My hope and my prayer is that you won't feel guilty and condemned this morning. Instead, my hope and my prayer is that as you see the sin that is in you, you will look no further than the cross of Christ who has paid every single payment that was necessary for that particular sin. So when you leave today, you're not overwhelmed with the plagues and the problems of your own sin. Instead, when you leave, you are praising the God and Father Jesus Christ who has done what you could not do to pay the penalty for that sin. That's where we want to go today. So what we're doing is we're showing you how the life of David connects with the life of Jesus. So in Matthew chapter 1, I'm going to read verse 1, and that's all we're going to read today. And then we'll dive next week and next week a little bit further into the life of Christ, looking at his humanity and even at his divinity, and that will take us up to Christmas Day. It says this in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Some of you, when you read Matthew's gospel and you get to chapter 1, you skip it. You know you do. And the reason you do is because you don't want to read a whole list of names. But what I hope you'll see today is that these names are important. In fact, these names are significant. That Jesus would not have included these names if he did not want you to know these names in his infallible word. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, it says this, The son of David, the son of Abraham. This verse is short. In fact, this verse has 16 words if you're using the ESV this morning. This verse is one sentence. But the significance of this verse cannot be measured. In fact, the significance of this verse cannot be weighed. This verse is extremely significant when it comes to the life of Christ and how it connects to the life of Abraham and even to the life of David. There are three things that I think this verse says to us this morning that I want to draw your attention to. The first one is this. First is this. Our sovereign God is in absolute control. Our sovereign God is in absolute control. This verse shows us that the God that you and I serve, he is a sovereign God. And as a sovereign God, the Bible shows us that he is in absolute control. There's two questions that I want to answer to make this point that our God is in absolute control. Our sovereign God is in absolute control. First is what do I mean by sovereign God? And then second, what do I mean by in absolute control? First, let's talk about the sovereignty of God. What we can't do this morning is confuse God's sovereignty with God's providence. Sometimes this is exactly what we do. We, we, because of the American government and how it functions, we think of sovereignty in a way really in which it's not defined. Sovereignty, by definition, means this, rightful authority. It means rightful authority. I, I love how Paul Miller says it in his book, uh, Lost in the Middle. He says, God is sovereign because of his rightful position as king. So he's sovereign because his rightful authority is that he occupies the throne and he is king and he is Lord. So because he's king and because he's Lord, listen, he should rule. He should rule. The emphasis there is on the word should. This is his rightful position. He is the one who exists in rightful, this is his rightful position. This is his rightful authority. 
he should rule. But because of his providence, it's not that he should rule. Because of his providence is that he does, in fact, rule. So God's sovereignty means rightful rule. It means he's supreme in rank. It, it means basically that the universe, the world in which you and I live, the, the lives that you and I live, they all operate and exist up under his jurisdiction. Now listen, David understood this as king. David understood that God sat on the throne. David understood that God is sovereign. He understood that God is king. And, and, and because of that, the way that David interacted with people is very interesting. In fact, it's very telling. Say it this way. The way that the people interacted with David is very interesting. In fact, it's very telling. See, David was the king of Israel. And because that was his rightful position that was given to him by the people of Israel, by God himself, the people of Israel treated David in a, in a special way. They respected David. They revered David. They held David to high standards. They held David in high regard. They related to him in a deeply personal way. They loved him and they feared him. They were in awe of him. That's how the people of God, the people of Israel, related to their king who was in rightful position and rightful authority in their own individual lives. Let me ask you a question this morning. If the people upon under King David's rule and reign respected him and revered him and feared him and held him to high esteem, how much more do you think the people of God should revere and respect and hold to high esteem the king who occupies the throne, King Jesus? Much more, right? It's just a picture of who we are supposed to be. So that's what it means by our God is sovereign, our sovereign God. The second half of that sentence is what do I mean by saying he's in absolute control? Our sovereign God is in absolute control. These six words, Jesus Christ, the son of David, are intended to preach a sermon to you. That's what they're intended to do. They're intended to cause you to stop, step back, and explore. They're intended for you to dig a little deeper and to try to figure out what exactly the Lord Jesus Christ, what exactly even Matthew is trying to expose to us. Well, this is what he's trying to tell you. He wants you to see that the plans of God are unshakable. He, he wants you to see that you cannot thwart the plan of God. That if God purposes something to happen, he's going to see that it actually happens. I've said this before about, the God, about God's sovereignty. That nothing happens that happens without God allowing it to happen. And it's true. Because he sits on the throne and he governs the entire world. So the plan of God is unshakable. We see here in these six words, Jesus Christ, the son of David, not only is the plan of God unshakable, but the purpose of God, that they're unwavering. They don't fluctuate. They stay the same. This is who he is. He's a constant God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when he set this out in the Old Testament, he fulfills it in the New Testament. He doesn't change. He's faithful to his promises. Well, what do you mean, Trey? Here's what I mean. When you explore the rest of this passage... There are 41 generations of people that it took to get from Abraham all the way to Jesus. 41 generations of people. Guys, this should blow our minds as men and women of faith. From Abraham to David to the coming of Christ, 
we see 41 generations of people held together seamlessly by the hands of God so that God, who made a promise 41 generations ago, could fulfill that promise, that promise 41 generations later. Think about that. Do you know what that is? Do you know why that's important? It's important because it's intended to elicit a response in you, a response of awe, a response of wonder, a response of amazement that the great and grander God that you and I serve can keep everything together for 41 entire generations without skipping a beat so that he can fulfill the promises that he's made. Think about it. He controlled every single word spoken for 41 generations. He's, he, fulfilled, or he, he, he controlled every event, every location, every relationship, every decision. And he did this every minute of every hour of every day throughout the entire year, throughout the entire 41 generations. That should elicit a response in us. A response to say, holy cow, wow, God is good. And it should fill us with awe. It should fill us with wonder. Now, my family and I, we live up under one roof. There are six of us in our family, myself, my wife, Kayla, Rylan, Reagan, Reese, and River. 13, 11, 8, and 6. Okay, that's our family. We have six people in our family. We have four kids. My wife used to refer to our house as the word, she would use the words to refer to our house as the words beautiful chaos, okay? I was a counselor for centrifuge camps. I wasn't a counselor. That was a lie. Sorry. Um, I was a pastor with centrifuge camps, and I went and I watched uh, the counselors interact with some students on day one. They would come to these camps for an entire week, and the very first thing on the very first day that they would do was this event that they would do in the middle of a field. And I remember how they defined the event. They said, this is organized chaos. It's chaos, no doubt, but it's organized chaos. And that's kind of what our house is like. It's chaotic, no doubt, but it's beautiful chaos in some ways. And don't ask us now, because we probably would say that it's really not that beautiful at all. But we have four kids, and we have to manage four kids. Now, just because the Lord has a sense of humor, none of our four kids enjoy the same hobbies or same activities, okay? So we have four different ball schedules. You have Rylan, who plays volleyball. She has to go to Roswell to do that. And then you have Reagan, who plays basketball and plays softball, and that could be here, there, anywhere. And then you have Reese, who likes gymnastics and cheer. And then you have River, who's football, baseball, basketball. So whatever season it just happens to be. What this often does is it puts myself and Kayla in different positions at different times trying to just manage the group. But what it also often does is makes one of our kids be pushed off on one of you as a mom. Like you're taking our kids somewhere because we know that you're going to the event anyway because we can't make it. Um, so it, it ha you have to manage and you have to deal with what you've got. So that's kind of what our house looks like. Four different ball schedules. They come home from school. That's four different people who have completely different homework assignments. So we're trying to do all of that every single night. You got four kids that have to be fed, so you got to feed them. And none of them like the same meal, right? You know how this is. So you're trying to figure out what they like so that they'll actually eat something of substance and not Christmas tree cakes, right? Because that's what they do during Christmas. So you got four kids to feed. You got four kids to get ready for bed. You got four kids. You got to wash your clothes and have them picked out and ready for the next day. You got four kids to read to. If you do that, you got four kids to care for. And if I'm honest with you, we drop the ball a lot. And for some of you who have four kids, maybe two kids, you, you recognize that reality. Man, it's a lot to manage. 
And then I sit back and think that as chaotic as my life seems and how often I drop the ball, how often I disappoint or fail, how often my child really wanted me at their game and I wasn't able to show up because I had another child that was at a different game. And you start to wear those emotions and yet you look at God who controlled 41 generations without a hiccup, without a fault, without a failure. He did it to a T. And what I love about these 41 generations is that not only did God take these 41 different generations and work them to fulfill his promise that he made in the Old Testament, but also within those 41 generations, a lot of people did a lot of silly stuff, and yet God still kept his promise. Daniel 4 says it this way, the Lord rules over the host of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. Isn't that true and isn't it good? that God rules over not only the hosts of heaven, but also the inhabitants of the earth. And he says, no one can stop his hand or say to him, what have you done? God knows exactly what he's doing. He even uses our mishaps to accomplish his will and his purposes. Listen, church, our lives must be captivated by the beauty of this reality, that the God that you and I serve is not only sovereign, but the God that you and I serve is in absolute control. There is nothing in your life that happens that he does not allow to happen. Some of you, you're here today and you're trying to figure out how this financial crisis that you found yourself into is really going to work out. You're trying to figure out how this relationship that seems like it's crumbling is going to work out. And all these questions, when you start to, start to think about them and, and mull over them and start to try to figure these things out, what happens is you start to feel emotions creep up within you like worry and doubt and fear. And you start getting anxious and you start feeling nervous and you start feeling a bit uneasy. But ma'am, sir, if that is you this morning, here is what you need to hear. Do not forget he rules over the hosts of heaven, and he rules over the inhabitants of the earth. Ma'am, sir, if that's you, do not forget, he is the king of the universe, and there is no king besides this king who is deserving to occupy the throne of your life. Don't forget, ma'am, sir, what Paul said in Ephesians. He rules over all things for the sake of his body. That is the church. This is the God that you serve, ma'am. This is the God that you serve, sir. He holds everything together, and it's going right now according to his plan. Our sovereign God is in absolute control. But there's a second thing I want you to see this morning. Not only is our sovereign God in absolute control, but our sovereign God is also faithful. Our sovereign God is also faithful. If you flip back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, Verse 16, listen to this. You don't have to turn there, it'll be on the screen. It says this, in your house, in your kingdom, this is God talking to David, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That is a promise that God made to David. He promised David that the house of David, the kingdom of David, the throne of David, shall be established forever. And now when we come back to our passage in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, what does it say? It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. What, what's your point, Trey? Matthew 1, 1 is a fulfillment of the promise that God made to David. Jesus has come through the lineage of David to establish his kingdom forever. What does that mean? 
God is faithful to fulfill his promise. And some of you need to hold on to that reality today. He gives us the confidence to know, this does, that God is indeed a faithful God. You know why he's faithful? He's faithful precisely because he's sovereign. You can't have one without the other. He's faithful because his rightful position is that he is king. He's faithful because his rightful authority is that he, is that he lords over the world and lords over the universe. If he's not sovereign, then he can't deliver on the promises that he's made. But because he is sovereign, he can and he will deliver on each and every promise. Let's cross the bridge. What about your life? What situation or circumstances in your life that's happening right now where you feel like all hope has been lost? Let me ask it to you this way. Where are you putting your hope this morning? I warned pastor who said it like this. Sometimes when we have rebellious kids, we put our hope in the very place that's already failing, which is us. We have rebellious kids, so we have to figure out the problem. We have to solve the riddle, solve the puzzle. We have rebellious kids. If there's any hope for this child, we have to look inward and we have to look at us. We have to look around us. We have to look at each other. And the reality is, is all those places will actually fail us. Same thing is true when our finances are upside down. We start to manage and make plans and try to do things because we think that hope is in us. Same thing's true when we feel anxious or confused or even depressed. Maybe there's a change in our life that we're not sure about. A job change, a relational change. Maybe the passing of a family member or the passing of a friend. Through those moments in your life, where's your hope? Is your hope in you? Is your hope in a better situation or a change of circumstance? Is your hope in a better job? Or maybe a better paying job? Is your hope in a relationship? Every single one of these things will not deliver. Every single one of those things will feel good for a moment, but they won't deliver. The only place that we can go to find any of these things answered in their entirety to where we'll experience true satisfaction and true fulfillment is when we turn to our only hope, who is really Jesus, who alone is faithful and who alone delivers on all of his promises. For many of us, church family, we don't know the promises of God. The promises of God rest in the word of God. To, to learn what promises have been made and what promises will be kept, we have to turn there so that we can know what promises actually exist to begin with. And this text is showing us this morning that not only is our sovereign God in absolute control, but our sovereign God, he is also faithful. And he will deliver 100% on every single promise that he's ever made. And then there's a third and a final thing this morning. Third and finally, our sovereign God is gracious. He's gracious. You know, when you come to this text this morning, there's two names that are mentioned. It says first, well, there's really three names because Jesus Christ is included. Second is the son of David. 
and then the son of Abraham. The son of David and the son of Abraham. You know who Abraham was? Abraham had been known by the name the father of the faithful. Abraham. Father of the faithful. Yet you know what's true of Abraham? The father of the faithful? When you read Genesis chapter 20, the father of the faithful was a liar. The father of the faithful was deceitful. He lied about Sarah being his sister instead of his wife. And not only did he do this, but he tried uh, but, but not only did this, but he tried to hide behind his wife often. He cracked under pressure. And later, Abraham would become an impatient adulterer. You know the story. He doubted if God was going to be faithful to his promises. Remember, he was going to deliver a child be, you know, between him and Sarah. And they were getting older, wasn't getting younger. And he started to doubt God being faithful to his promise. So what did he do? He took matters into his own hand. He slept with a servant girl named Hagar. That was the father of the faithful. That's Abraham. So what you see is that even he committed gross infractions of the law. It's a horrible scene in Scripture. But then the other name that's mentioned is David. We've studied David. I don't have to go at great lengths here. David was an unlikely king. David was a runt in the middle of a field watching sheep by day and watching sheep by night. In fact, when his dad was asked about who might be the next king, he didn't even think about David. He was a forgotten son that was out in the middle of the field. Yet God anointed him as king anyway. And even then, as David occupies the throne of Israel and begins to govern and rule over God's people, what does he do? He commits adultery. He sleeps with another man's wife. And then because she got pregnant and he didn't want people to know, this about him because it will result really in her death. He tries to cover it up. He brings Uriah back into town. And the first thing he does is tries to say, hey, why don't you go back home for the night and come back to me in the morning, thinking that if he goes home and washes himself up and cleans himself up, he will be with his wife. And then after they're together, then the baby would look like it belongs to the right mom and dad. Well, that didn't work. So the next day he had another plan. You know the story. He says, okay, well, I'll just give him something to drink. I'll loosen him up a little. And maybe if I loosen him up a little, he'll go back home and he'll do this with his wife. Well, instead he gets drunk, he passes out on the couch. You know the story. This is David plotting and planning, trying to cover up his own sin. This is the guy that you and I admired. But what we're realizing about David is even David is a broken king. If you walk through 41 generations of people, church family, you would be in complete shock. You would be in complete shock. There are, what, five women mentioned in this passage. You have Tamar, who's mentioned, abandoned widow. What did she do? She seduced her father-in-law and gave him twins. And right beside Tamar's name, you have Rahab, who was a harlot, a prostitute. And then later on, you have Bathsheba. You know the story of Bathsheba? She was another man's wife. And then yet, God somehow found it strategic to put these three women right beside Ruth, who was a faithful, sacrificial servant of the Lord, 
and Mary, the very mother of the king. What's my point? My point is simple. The God that you and I serve is a good and he's a gracious God. The God that you and I serve can forgive and will forgive any gross infraction of the law that we've committed against him. Even as secularized as our American society has become, you and I still categorically consider adultery to be a bad, egregious act, and it is. You and I still consider murder to be in a class by itself, a bad, egregious act, and it is. But when we start looking through the lens and the eyes of God, what we see is that sin, no matter how big and no matter how small, deserves and suffers the same consequence. Separation between humanity and divinity, us and God. But we serve a God who loved us so much that the Bible said demonstrated his love in this, that even while we were yet sinners, even while we were yet murderers, even while we were yet adulterers, even while we were yet liars, even while we were yet deceitful, even while we were yet you fill in the blank, he sent his son Jesus to die a death that was yours to die, but because you couldn't because of your sin. Or he lived, to live the life that you were supposed to live, but because you couldn't, because you sinned, he then went and died the death that was yours to die. That is good. That is gracious. And some of you, you're here today, ma'am, sir. You're approaching Christmas season. And if you're honest, not only is chaos in the streets as everyone rushes to get the last Tickle Me Elmo or whatever's popular today, but that same chaos that you experience in Walmart and Target and in the streets, that square, has somehow made its way into your home. But instead of pointing your finger all around you because it's everyone else when you're out in public, you have nowhere to point your finger when you're under your own roof except for at yourself. And you know that it's your rebellion, it's your deceit, it's your sin, it's your mishaps, your hiccups, your mistakes that have created destruction and division amongst you and your family, but more importantly, between you and God. And the greatest thing that we can encourage you to do this Christmas season is to not get sidetracked by all the gifts that are gonna come your way or that you're giving to other people, but to be fully focused on the only gift that really matters, the gift of Jesus that was wrapped in swaddling clothes, who came into the world, who was the son of Abraham, the son of David, and he came so that he could redeem you of your sin and become more to you than just the God, because he is, and just the king, and he is. The Bible says he becomes a friend. He becomes a father, and he adopts you into his household so that you forever can reign with him eternally.